We are continuing our series that we've called The Rhythm of God, and we've been looking at the rhythm of God throughout scriptures, particularly in the book of Genesis. As I said on week one, the people of God, when they were in bondage for 400 years, had grown disconnected. They needed to be reoriented to this God that they had been disconnected from and estranged from, and being reminded through Moses' servant how God works and how God moves. And so God inspires Moses to write the book of Genesis. And it's in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis that we begin to see rhythms and patterns for not how, not only how, God, how will God work in the first few chapters of the Bible, but how will God work throughout all of scripture? How will God work throughout all of history and even in our lives? And so we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and how God began with the rhythm of redemption, bringing life out of death and order out of chaos. We see in Genesis 2 that he creates male and female and he gives us the pattern and the rhythm of relationships. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 3, all hell breaks loose, everything falls apart, and we're left with this incredible mess that God, from that point forward, would be committed to coming down and being the God of rescue. And last week, we saw in Genesis chapter 4, that it actually got a lot worse than we even imagined, that we see in Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel, uh, the story of brother killing his younger brother, the Cain slaying his younger brother Abel in the first murder recorded in Scripture, and then we're hit with the reality that it is far worse than we ever could have imagined. And then in Genesis chapter 5, Cain's lineage continues to grow, continues to multiply. And if Cain was indicative of what culture and humanity would be like, it only gets more wicked and more corrupt. And then finally we're faced with Genesis chapter 6. And it's in Genesis chapter 6 that it says that the world had become increasingly corrupt. And it's in Genesis chapter 6 that God finally comes down and says, I have to destroy the earth. It has become too corrupt. It has become too evil. And he comes down and in Genesis chapter 6, he tells a remnant that he will destroy the earth. And in Genesis chapter 7, what do we see? God sends to the earth a flood to wipe out the earth. And it, before, he build, uh, before he sends the waters to flood the earth, he calls Noah to build an ark. Because in the midst of destruction and devastation, he wants to save a remnant. And then finally in Genesis chapter 8, we read that after 40 days and 40 nights... The world being wiped out except for this remnant, this remnant of Noah and his family, that he makes a promise. As the flood subsides, he enters into a covenant relationship, a promised relationship with Noah, his servant. And that's where we're at this morning. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on, upon every beast and earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I require reckoning. 
From every beast I require it, and from man, and from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all generations I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, the bow is seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of God. Amen. So we see here as I summarize Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, you see the increasing corruption on the earth, the evil in the earth, and you see that God comes down and he wipes out earth with a flood. And we see here and we wonder after the flood, will there be anything left? What exactly is God doing here? Will he actually preserve anything? And we see here that he actually does fulfill his promise of preserving Noah and a remnant. Noah and his family. But I want to ask the question this morning, what exactly is he preserving in preserving Noah and his family? What is he exactly up to? God could have easily said, it's all done. Everybody's gone. Noah and his family. What exactly was God's purpose in preserving Noah and his family? I believe that God had something bigger to share with us and for the history of the world revealed to us in his preservation of Noah and his family. I want to present this morning and think about for a few minutes that God, through preserving Noah and his family, is actually preserving three important things as we think about how God works and how God moves. He preserves, in preserving Noah and his family, our value, number one, our earth, number two, and then lastly, our relationship with him. He preserves our value, he preserves the earth, and he preserves our relationship with him. First, our value. What is God doing? How does God preserve the value of humanity? Well, we see it in verse 5 and 6. He basically says in 5, I will require lifeblood. There will be a reckoning between every beast and every man that sheds the blood of another person. And then in verse 6, he answers the question, why? Why will he require a reckoning? Why will he require an account? In verse 6, what does is, what is he do? He takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we are told that we are created, how? In the image and likeness of God. And so God repeats himself here in Genesis chapter 9. He brings us back to how man is created. What is the basis and the foundation for value and for worth for all humanity? The basis for all value and worth is found here once again in Genesis chapter 9 that we are created in the image and likeness of God. J.I. Packer 
incredible theologian and writer said, the mission of God and the mission of God's church is always grounded and rooted in the reality of the image of God, that the image of God fuels the mission of God. The image of God fuels the mission of God's people here on earth, that the reason we do what we do as Christians, the reason we do what we do as a church is fundamentally rooted in this idea that all people are created in the image and likeness of God. It is the level playing field. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you look like, regardless of where you've been, all are created in the image of God. And that is what calls a church to be a church that is committed to reconciling people. Because people have been estranged from God and we have been estranged from each other. And it's the reality that we are created in the image and likeness of God that fuels our mission to see people reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. It's why we go out and do what we do. It's why we stand for the vulnerable. It's why we stand for the sanctity of life of all people. It's why we stand for the sanctity of life of the unborn. It's why we stand for the sanctity of life of the widow. It's why we stand for the sanctity of life of the vulnerables of our society, the orphan. It's why on December the 4th, we're going to have 750 foster care children here because every single one of those children were created in the image and likeness of God. And it is that reality, it is the truth of that reality that drives our mission. The image of God drives the mission of God. It's why next Sunday we'll take a deacon benevolence offering after communion because we believe that every single person in our congregation is created in the image and likeness of God and that there's people that are hurting in our congregation, and that's why we give to the Deacon Benevolence Fund. It's why we go out and do what we do inside the church and outside the church. We long for this reconciliation. John Calvin, great French theologian, said this. He says, The Lord commands all men without exception to do good, yet the great part of them are most unworthy. If they are judged, listen to this, if they are judged by their own merit and righteousness... It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. What John Calvin is trying to say, it is the reality that all men and women are created in the image of God, that we do not look at the person to our right or to our left and judge them according to their own merit and righteousness. If we were to do that, we would neglect everyone. We would turn our back on everyone. But we look at our neighbors. We look at the people to our right and to our left. We look to the people that God has brought into our life, and we do not look at them according to their own merit and righteousness. We look at them as a child of God that has born and been born and created in the image of God. And it's on that basis that we love. It's on that basis that we minister to them. It's on that basis that we serve them. And what John Calvin was trying to say, to neglect them is to, to neglect God because they've been created in God's image and likeness. So what God is trying to do here in preserving Noah and his family is saying, I am preserving the value and the worth and the dignity of all humanity in order for the mission of God to advance. The second thing we see here is not only God preserving our value, but he's also preserving the earth. Verse 8 and 11, it basically tells us in verses 8 through 11 that God will never, ever again destroy the earth by flood. Never again destroy the earth by flood. But instead, what will God do from this point forward, from Genesis chapter 9 to the very end, what will God do? 
He will renew the heavens and the earth. A few months ago when we were going through our vision series and we were talking about as a church, what does it mean to be about the renewal of all things? We get that vision from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation that Jesus at the end is on his throne saying, behold, I make all things new. And that as a church, we can go out and be the salt of the earth and light of the world, bringing about renewal. Where's that come from? Right here in Genesis chapter 9, God's promise to never destroy the earth must only mean one thing, that from this point forward, since he will not destroy it, he can only mean one thing, that he will forever work towards its renewal, restoring beauty, restoring chaos, restoring order in the midst of chaos, restoring light in the midst of darkness. Church, this is why we do love South Florida. This is why we commit ourselves, not just in a month, for a month, we commit ourselves always and wholly to the mission of God in our city and in our communities. That's why one of our vision goals is to engage with our neighbors and with our communities. That's why we partner with the Fort Lauderdale Police Association. That's why we partner with the community called Avondale and seek its beauty and seek its peace and prosperity as the prophet Jeremiah tells us. It's why we adopt communities like Avondale to see its renewal and its revival. It's why we don't like the Greeks, the ancient Greeks say, we are going to reject all things physical and just attain that which is spiritual. We say it's spiritual and physical renewal. We want to see people's lives transformed by the gospel, by that great substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, but we also want to see the, the gospel send people out to seek the renewal and the peace and the prosperity of our city and our communities, longing for that day where we can echo the words with Jesus, behold, I make all things new. This is why we do what we do. See, we don't worship the earth, but we don't at the same time reject it. We find our grounding in the gospel and in the promise that God is making all things new. We long for its renewal. And God's promise here in Genesis chapter 9 is that he will preserve it and use us as his agents to be the salt of the earth and light of the world, bringing about its renewal here on earth. And then lastly, God not only here in Genesis chapter 9 promises to preserve human value and dignity in all people. He not only promises to preserve the earth till the very end to seeking its renewal and its restoration, but lastly, he promises to preserve his relationship with his people forever. Verse 12 through 14, what does it say? God said, this is a sign of the covenant. Covenant simply means a promise that I make between me and you and every living creature for all generations. He's saying forever. I make this promise forever. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant, the promise between me and the earth. I will bring clouds over the earth. Skip down to verse 15. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on. 
the earth. You see, God promises forever to, to preserve his relationship with his people. And in doing so, he says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign so that you'll always remember that my relationship with you is preserved. It is here to stay regardless of what happens. I will put a bow in the sky. Today we refer to that bow as a rainbow. It comes during when? It comes during the storm. You see, for us this morning, the reason we need a promise like that is the promise is when God has his relationship with his people, he doesn't always promise sunshine. He promises that I will send a reminder even in the midst of the storm. It is the backdrop of the storms of life, the cloudy days of life that don't seem like days, but they seem like months and seasons. It seems like all eternity. It is in the storms of life, the cloudiness of life, that God sends his sweet reminder to us that I am for you, that I am with you, that I am your God and you are my people. What an incredible promise that is. But it's interesting here in Genesis chapter 9, it doesn't say rainbow, does it? It just says bow. You see, the proper translation for this word bow here is a war bow, kind of like a bow and arrow. You see, what God is being depicted here in Genesis chapter 9 is a warrior God, a God that has his bow and arrow, a God that has his war bow. And after destroying the earth with the flood, what God is saying is, I'm putting my war bow up on the shelf. I'm retiring the war bow as a great general or a great warrior would do. I'm putting it in the clouds. Why? as a reminder that I will never destroy, that I will never destroy you with the war bow. But what's interesting about this is there's a dilemma. And the dilemma is this. Because in verse 5, God said, there will be a reckoning for bloodshed. There will be a reckoning for sin. So the question is, was God naive enough to think in Genesis chapter 9 that humanity would no longer sin? Hey, I'm safe to put up the war bow. Or did he know exactly what he was doing? You see, when he puts up the war bow in the clouds and we're confronted with the reality that there must be a reckoning for sin, that there must be a reckoning for shed blood, what God is forever doing here in Genesis chapter 9 is saying, Someone else is going to get that war bow. Someone else will pay the price. Someone else will pay the price for shed blood. Someone else will pay the price for sin. Someone else will have to give a reckoning with the war bow of God. That one day, yes, God will take down the war bow, but it will not be against his people. It will not be against his sons and daughters. But that centuries later, there would be a man by the name of Jesus Christ that would come and through his death, He would take on the condemnation that you deserve. He would take on the wrath that you deserve. He would take on the war bow. That the warrior God would take out his wrath and his judgment against his very son in our place. So he puts it in the clouds. And it's at the very end of scripture in Revelation chapter 4 verse 3. Revelation chapter 4 verse 3. That we see a picture of the throne room of God. And in Genesis chapter 4 verse 3, it tells us that the rainbow is where? 
on the throne. It is over the throne. It has an appearance of emerald. And it is over the throne of God. What a beautiful picture that at the very end of Scripture, the final place where we meet, will meet God is the warbo over the throne of grace, reminding us continually that someone else satisfied the need to take on that condemnation, to take on that judgment, to take on that wrath. What a great promise that is. Because for some of us, we sit here this morning and we go, it's too good to be true that God is for me. If you only knew what happened this week, if you only knew what happened this month, there's no way you could trace and say that God is for me. You you don't even know what happened this morning getting here to church. For some of you, you sit here this morning and you go, the, the cloud, it is a thunderstorm over my life that I go to bed with and I wake up with. A thunderstorm of clouds over my head every single day. And it is in those days, it is in you on your worst day that we can read this. And say, in the midst of the storm, God hangs up his bow to remind you so that you would never have to doubt another day of your life that God is for you. That you would never have to doubt that even in the midst of the storm, he is for you and that he loves you. How much does he love me? Even being willing to come down from the heavens to take on the condemnation and the judgment that we rightly and justly deserve. Lightning for him and rainbows for us. Let me end with this story. Heard this story a couple weeks ago. There was a boy by the name of Shia who had severe learning disabilities, and his father recalls the story of this child, Shia's, uh, growing up. It was a it was a experience growing up of deep ridicule. It was a growing up of being shunned and being estranged from other boys his age because of his severe learning disabilities. And the father recalls growing up, Shia always had this disposition of just being absolutely lifeless. No emotion. No hope. No joy. And Shia and his father one day were walking past a park with some of the, and they saw some of the boys that grew up in that neighborhood and they were playing baseball. And the father recalled that this was his dream, his son's dream, to just get to play with these boys. One game, one game of organized baseball. And in the middle of the game, the father approached the boys, not knowing what to expect, not knowing what answer they would receive. And they said, my boy has one dream play a game of baseball. And thinking they would reject him, they hesitantly invited Shia onto the field. Shia grabs a glove and he, 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 they say, go out to center field. He doesn't know where center field is, so somebody literally has to hold his hand and take him to stand in center field. And at the time they started playing, uh, Shia's team that he joined was down by six runs. But all of a sudden they found themselves in the bottom of the ninth. And the team had rallied back to tie. And they had a chance to really win the game. And guess who was up to bat? Shia. 
Looking around, the boys wondered what to do. We have a real chance to win this game today. They decided to let Shia stand up to bat. Shia didn't even know how to hold a bat. Literally, some boy had to stand beside him and hold the bat for him. And the pitcher tossed him the first ball, and he didn't even know how to swing the bat. They had to help him swing. And they pitched him again, and they again, and again, and again. And finally, the pitcher had to get about four feet in front of him and toss this softball to him. And with the help of his friend, his new friend, what does Shia do? He hits the ball, he makes contact, and it goes right to the shortstop. And the shortstop had a moment to think about what to do because he could have thrown the ball to first and the game would have been over. But what does the shortstop do? He throws the ball into right field. And they go, go Shia, go, run, run, run. And the right fielder looks and could have easily thrown the ball to second. And the right fielder throws the ball to left field. And they go, Shia, run, run, run. And they start throwing the ball over each other's heads intentionally. And they say, Shia, go home, Shia, go home, Shia, go home. And when Shia gets home, what is he greeted with? 18 boys waiting for him, cheering him on and lift him up on their shoulders and say, Shia, today you are our hero. The father says, I'll never forget that day because it was the first time that I looked at Shia and he had life in him. It was the first time I looked at him and he came alive. And with tears streaming down his face, Shia looked at his dad and he said, we won. We really, really won. Those boys that day forgot their win, they laid down and took their defeat so that Shia could be victorious. And for those that are in Christ this morning, for those that know Jesus Christ, that is exactly what has happened to you. Jesus has laid down. The King of kings and Lord of lords has laid his life down and took defeat and took on our shame and took on our loss and took on our sin so that you could win and that you could live forever. So that maybe for the first time, even some of you this morning can walk out and say, I'm living. I thought I was living, but now I'm really living because I've met the one who conquered sin and death for me. I, took, I met the one who took on my condemnation. I met the one who took on the wrath and the judgment that I deserve. His name is Jesus. I ask you this question, how, how could you go another day without knowing this man, Jesus? The one who laid down his life so that you could live